this is making it here and there. Welcome to the show. Joseph Friedman has merged his passions for travel, discovery, and environmentalism into a multi-directional life on land, in the skies, and under the sea. He is a flight attendant by trade, yet his love of learning, adapting, and meeting new people has taken him beyond the runway. Joseph believes that travel is not about the destination. It's about the journey to appreciate culture and history, destroy division and fear, and cultivate your own personal growth. You can see Joseph's journeys, photographs, and art pieces on Instagram using the handle JoJo's Friedman. Thank you, Joseph, so much for uh, coming on Making It Here and There. I, uh, I'm so glad we're getting a chance to reconnect and uh, chat about all the cool places you're going to and all the things you've been doing for the last couple of years. Thank you for having me, Allison. I appreciate it. <laughs> so tell, tell the world, what are you, what are you doing for, for work and what are you up to? Sure. So I have been a flight attendant for Delta Airlines since April 2015. Uh, which next make next month will, will make six years. Um, being a flight attendant means long hours and lots of on your feet and developing an understanding for people's behavior based on their desires and verbal and physical actions. Um, that's taken up the bulk of my time over the last six years is flying and doing any number of flights in a day as well. And um, it really makes you appreciate when you're not working either. <laughs> and what, what, like, what were the series of events that led you into this career path? Mm-hmm. So uh, I would have to say that there are several each um, of people and then series of events that led it to me. Specifically to becoming a flight attendant at Delta, there was one person who really pushed me to do it. I had been working in 2014 uh, at a hotel company, a family boutique hotel company in San Diego. They had three local resort hotels. And Mm -hmm. one of the girls that I was working with, and I was working in a call center doing reservations and sales, Mm -hmm. uh, she had told me that she had gotten hired. She was going to leave. Uh, the hotel and work for American because she just got hired as a flight attendant. Mm-hmm. She's going to go to training. And she was like, you should really apply for Delta. They're hiring. She had even said, this is kind of funny, she had worked for them uh, the year before for Delta, but she actually got expelled from the training. She didn't pass the test required to complete it. And she had also worked for a jet company in San Diego. And I really enjoyed her stories. So I went on and I applied, uh, took like, I'd say around five or six months between when I had applied until when I went for training myself. Okay. Um, yeah, it was her motivation and stories that I was like, yeah, I really should go for it. I had interviewed with United back in 2012 uh, when I was in New York and mm-hmm. I flew down to Houston for a job interview with them as a flight attendant, but I didn't get the job, but I did use that experience of having done in-person interview to be a flight attendant because it is pretty specific to what it is. Uh, I used that experience uh, for when I went to Delta and it definitely came in handy. Um, Another kind of event that led me to my interest in this was so when I met you back at the new school and I was working for AFS, I had a job with them where I would go to all three New York airports uh, quite regularly, sometimes often all in the same day, meeting and greeting students for orientations and kind of chaperoning them around in between their study abroad experiences, whether they were coming to the U.S. or coming back home from abroad, you name it. So I felt very comfortable being at airports and it, that little ounce of like airport glamour was something I really enjoyed and it got me interested in where I am now. Um, so it's funny you, you mentioned, um, just now the like process by which to get hired. What, what are some qualities that they, that 
you know, because I feel like when we think about flight attendants, like you just think <laughs> you think of the meme where it's like you get to walk around and go trash, trash, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and like that's what people think. Like you just go around and like collect garbage and hand out food and drinks. Like what do they that's look for? <laughs> so what? What, what do what, they what, look for? Yeah, what do they look for? And like, what's the training process like? Right. So. When they're hiring, they kind of change it up every year a little bit. Mm -hmm. I've known people who've gotten on the hiring team eventually Mm -hmm. uh, because you get hired by flight attendants and by human resources. But uh, they're they're looking for people who they feel could represent their brand Mm -hmm. the best that they could, at least in my company. And they're looking for people who seem to have a happy persona about Mm -hmm. them as well and people that are willing to do the work involved. Uh, It really comes down case by case. I think the more that the people interviewing you feel like they could develop a personal connection with you in the brief time that they're talking to you is what really sparks interest for them to hire the applicant because that's what they're hoping that you'll bring on the airplane for the passengers is some kind of a personal connection despite being cramped with 300 people in a metal tube. How do you give somebody yeah. a personal connection when you're <laughs> when you're just cramped? Like, yeah, you're in the uh, the the flying. I don't know what you want to call it. Just, you know, it's surprisingly easier than you would think. Okay, it's as simple as complimenting something. You know, someone might be wearing something like, "Oh, I like that brand." You know, little mm-hmm. things. That it could be that, or you could be walking by someone like a little kid who's reading Harry Potter. And mm-hmm. you're like, ah, oh, wonderful. And yeah, you know, you, you can make, you can spark little conversation pieces just from that, even if it's only for 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of thing that makes you less robotic. Right. And right. it's really that the less robotic you can be about it and the more personal is what really is the quality that they want. So it's just about like you said, like establishing that rapport and having that like mm-hmm. even little bit of small talk just to just to bring it yeah. on like the hey, I'm I'm normal just like you, you know, we're in we're in this together. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, it, it's the small talk, it's those little things. And it is amazing to see how long sometimes these conversations can go. Mm. Um sometimes you can be talking with people for 30 minutes, all of a sudden, <laughs> like a half hour has gone by, you were talking to the same person about it, you know, it started with, it started like with Harry Potter, and then it turned into anything, you name it, it could be any kind of conversation. And it is really cool, you meet a lot of interesting people that way. Um, now, I know we kind of talked about this before we started recording, but how does the schedule work for a flight attendant? Yeah, so... Uh, my schedule works by being able to accept constant change and predict anything will happen regardless of plan. So that means that whether I have a destination or amount of flights on my roster, it may not come to fruition by the end of the day. Okay. But scheduling itself does work a few different ways. So flight attendants at my company get to bid for desired trip type, sign-in time, amounts of flights in a day, destination, aircraft specific type, that kind of thing. Uh, But then seniority determines the overall outcome. And in the six years, I have been pretty lucky overall with my bids. And the more I continue flying, the more I learn different kinds of tricks to manipulate the system in bidding. And then when you bid, your schedule is released then for the following month. And once it's released, it still isn't locked down either. Uh, we have the ability to swap trips with other flight attendants. We can clear our schedule and drop trips, as we call it, which means that another flight attendant who has time off and is willing and available to work our trip will pick it up, mm-hmm. kind of like picking up a shift at a restaurant. Right. And then um, they take the trip from me. Then I can either choose to not work on those days or I pick up a different trip in place if I need the hours. Uh, I can also just simply... Uh, pick up what I want as extra when I want to, kind of like what I'm doing right now. 
mm -hmm. uh, even if none of my other trips drops, because it's up to me if I want to post them for someone else's availability. Uh, we also have a computer system where we can swap with an open trip in a in the computer. So mm -hmm. a position in a flight attendant crew that needs to be filled for that trip to function. And we have a certain amount of time we can do that by. And if we do, and it is, a, it is available, it then means that we've taken ourselves off of a trip we already had and put uh -huh. that position as open for somebody else to switch with the computer. Uh -huh. Yeah, then <laughs> this is a trickier. So let's say you're getting to the day of and a position is still open there, it would go to someone who's on um, access or reserve uh -huh. over those days. So you can have days where you're scheduled or you're on reserve as well. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a whole other topic for the scheduling. <laughs> well, I feel like, I mean, even, I mean, even my job, like there are times I'm, I'm, you're on call, so you might not get called or, you know, you might, I have a lot of calls. So it being it that right. That that happens, but um, okay. So, like you said, and I think you said you worked about you make about eighty hours a month. Get roughly. Yeah. So default is around eighty. People sometimes work less. They sometimes work more. I tend to work between eighty and a hundred. And I know that that sounds like a lot less to some people yes. <laughs> who are used to hearing forty. Right. You're used to hearing forty-hour work week. But the truth is, so imagine like this, you could have a 12 to 14 hour day, which is your duty day, but you may only work flying time of seven hours in that 12 to 14 hours, right. because it includes when you report at the airport, which is generally an hour before mm -hmm. the first flight leaves. And then you do your first flight, which could be like two or three hours. And then you're sitting at a different airport for a, another several hours. So even though you're doing what sounds like a lot less than someone else, you're still technically there for way longer than some people have traditional eight hour work days. Right. So the time that you're like in between, so like for right now, for example, you are at the hotel. Um, yeah. this, this doesn't count towards, towards your work hours. No, so right now, Exactly. Good question. I am uh, not earning my hourly flight pay okay. that I would be making while I am uh, on the aircraft. Mm -hmm. So when you are on your layover and your overnight, you're earning your per diem, but okay. you're not earning your hourly flight pay. Correct. Okay. So okay. there's a couple different pays that go on pace yeah grades or whatever you want to call it okay all right right now how would you say language plays a role in your job yeah so um language has played a role uh this is one of the reason why reasons why i find your podcast so interesting and your guests is you bring lots of people in different backgrounds yeah um like i i know you had nora on recently yeah. Mm -hmm. um, who's also a good friend of mine from the new school. Um, so I've always been interested in other languages and intercultural communication, being able to engage with people that do not speak the same language and finding ways to communicate with them. Hand gestures work, of course, but uh, demonstrations and smiles, uh, slower movements, they go a long way in terms of showing approachability to somebody that may not understand me or I may not understand them. Uh, now, of course, I was educated in intercultural communication. And one of the first rules is to assume that others have not been mm -hmm. educated in it. So I have to always remember that, especially on the airplane, that like the kind of educational background that we come from and our interests, a lot of other people in the world may not right. <laughs> have had that. But, um, and that often helps me kind of slow down as well, remembering that. But all of that aside, I do speak Spanish. So uh, from having multiple study abroad and work experiences in Spanish-speaking countries, speaking Spanish has been helpful on many flights, even in the most random of routes uh, within the United States. I have found using Spanish uh, 
useful for me on Kansas City to Salt Lake City, for example. I've had to use it before just as much as I've had to use it on a flight from New York City to Santo Domingo. It, you know, you just, you never know. It, you, you never know who's going to be on a flight and who needs your help in that sense. So to date, I have worked flights to every continent we fly to except for Africa. And I have not known the majority of languages that mm -hmm of the destinations that we fly to. And we often have uh, bilingual uh, flight attendants and bilingual passengers. And because the flights to most of those places are staffed with bilingual flight attendants, uh, that definitely helps us all uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who is a language flight attendant they have added responsibilities for translating announcements and being supportive in case of a medical emergency on the airplane. What I love about having worked to destinations like China and Brazil is that I came on the plane not knowing any words in mm. the languages of those countries. So in that case, Mandarin for mainland China and Portuguese for Brazil. But then I left my flight there at least having learned some of the necessities um even if i only was using them with a couple of people but at least you know that's something that like i said has always interested me so it makes it really fun for me to learn a few words here and there um one nice thing that i've seen amongst flight attendants is despite the plethora of backgrounds that we all come from uh whether they be racial educational age or different career backgrounds we had about every flight attendant that works internationally has some interest in learning to communicate better with people that they otherwise could not have been communicating with stepping onto that aircraft. Yeah. And that's a relief because, you know, you don't, you would hate to see it where it would be like the opposite, but I, I feel like that would be really unusual for somebody to, to dislike culture or anything to be a flight attendant, especially, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I mean, unless the unless the airline only flies like domestically, uh, domestically U.S., like I really would see that be unusual, uh, you know. Right. Unless you're like, and no, I don't mean to disrespect, but unless you're like Air Wisconsin, <laughs> um, <laughs> where the furthest you might be going is Chicago. Uh, no, then, if I was some airline shade. <laughs> yes, it was. But uh, so sorry to anyone who's listening who works for or Wisconsin, but um, yeah, generally when you work for a legacy carrier or a company that does go internationally, there is an element, you, you could have come from, you know, you could have come from a background, I work with people all the time who had never left their home state before they became a flight attendant, oh, which wow. is something that um, was not the case for myself, but um, even if that was the case for them, they're there now and they want to be and they want to learn and desire is what really brings people far with this and to in learning about other people wow i mean that's like i mean you <laughs> you definitely answered the question more more than <laughs> no but it's it's I, you know you would think like because you always see that like a lot of if you're flying internationally like there are always a lot of the flight attendants do are bilingual in some aspects. So, and like you said, you hear yeah. the air, you hear the pilot talking. There's always a translation that follows, um, or yeah. any translations that follow, depending on where you're flying to or from. So, you know, like you said, and, and at the end of the day, you know, you you fall back on these nonverbal cues to at least get your point mm -hmm. across. Exactly. Um. um so kind of related but I did want to talk a little bit about like just the travel industry in general um because it is yeah. a topic that I'm very interested in and I feel like I haven't had a chance to discuss this with anybody else on making it here and there so I'm like kind okay. of um so this like in your opinion like why is traveling so important right so there are so many reasons why traveling yeah. is important but um Traveling is important for everybody because it opens our minds. First and foremost is it opens our minds. Human behavior craves interaction with other people and experience in different places. And ability to travel opens that part of the soul and then 
engagement somewhere else nurtures it. Traveling does not just mean that you're doing what you see in magazines or on television with someone's incredible three-week vacation. It's just as simple as stepping into your car and going on a nearby walk or hike or something in your own community that you might have never done. Um, it can be as complex as leaving on a multi-year business move overseas as well. Uh, we as humans should not restrict ourselves to just being in our house or our home. And I know that's something that's been very hard for a lot of people over the last year. Um, our town or, and, or our city is our home and our state is, our country is, and the world is our home as well. Um, so all of these really are. And with the exception of the pandemic, travel had been easier and faster worldwide in the last 20 or so years than it had ever been in human history. Um, I think I recognized that at a young age, I wanted to travel and I saw that ability available and I wanted to make sure that I made the most of it. Um, I've gone on your run-of-the-mill bus tour trip. I've lived with host families in foreign countries. I've taken cooking classes abroad. I've studied in universities abroad. I've been to parties on cruise ships and local bars, you name it. And it's because of travel. Um, money is always a concern for most people and rightfully so, um, but you have to do your research. If you can make it um, somewhere, don't just reserve the first thing you're going to see available to do. Put the time in and the effort to finding the most affordable way to go with it. And it doesn't mean the cheapest either, but find the thing that matches the quality of what you're looking for. Um, you know, test yourself and your condition level and how comfortable you get. Um, that's a part of why travel is so important as well. So I sat on a packed train with no air conditioning in Thailand for over two hours with probably over 50 people in that train car to go over two hours uh, to go see ancient ruins. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was far less comfortable and it was not air conditioned like some of the charter buses that exist from Bangkok to where I was going, but you know, it helped my budget out and I was, I knew I was comfortable to do it. And, um, I had the time, which was also important and, you know, it was great. You lived, you're fine. <laughs> and you got to see what you wanted to see. It's not like, yeah, I did. I got to so see what I wanted to see. I got to see, I got to see these beautiful, ruins that um, are similar, they say, to what Angkor Wat looks like in Cambodia, which is somewhere I'd like to go. But um, uh, it's Ayutthaya, which was the old uh, historical capital of Thailand before Bangkok. And that's like, that is the same exact reason why, I mean, I know you said a lot, but <laughs> you perfectly summed <laughs> up how I felt. Now, um, right. I feel <laughs> You know, the thing about, for me, like traveling is, it, it, it's, it's not, I know this is gonna sound super cliche, but it's not the destination, it's the, it's the journey, it's the experience, it's, it's the people you meet, it's the people you chit chat with, it's, it's the, the good, the bad, you know, it's, it's the beautiful, and sometimes it's ugly, but you know, you, you see what's out there, because I feel like the, one of the worst things, and I feel like, you know, I'm not going to get like on my little soapbox, but, you know, I feel like one of the things with, with that, that holds a lot of people back is just fear, just fear of the unknown. I, I completely yeah. agree. Fear of the unknown is one of the biggest restraining factors that comes into it for a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm not saying put yourself, I mean, anybody to put themselves in a dangerous situation or, or be foolish of course, like use your head, you know, like don't, don't be an idiot, you know, I, I mean, you right. see people, I mean, but again, you can see that here too. I mean, you can go to New York city and people walk around with headphones in and their head down and like they're walking into traffic, like, come on, what are you doing? But you know, I, of course, like, and, and again, like understand, you know, do a little research. I mean, not that you have to be, uh, you have to speak the language fluently, but know a couple phrases, know how to say help, or know how to, know who to call, know the number for, you know, the equivalent of 911 in another country, or wh whatever the case may be, you know, use your head. Definitely. But, but, but having that, that, 
you know, I would say security, I use that in quotes, but having that in your back pocket is enough to just say, okay, well, I'm comfortable. I can go and do X, Y, and Z and have this amazing experience because there's really nothing like it. Like the stories that I have from traveling, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I can't take, you can't take those away. You can't take them away from me, but you, it's true. No. You know? I, you can't take away some of the experiences you get from traveling. You can only add more to it. Right, right. That's the thing. And it's really, it comes again to, you know, fear being a big part of it. The less you are afraid and the more willing you are to travel and experience something, the more you're going to learn about yourself as well. Definitely. And you learn what you're... you you learn um how do i say it you learn what you're grateful for too i mean like what you know what you have at home you know i've said this before and people think i'm like insane by saying this but it's true like you really not that you necessarily miss home but it makes you appreciate home a lot differently absolutely it really does you in traveling and depending on any kind of travel you learn a lot about yourself from the experiences you make when you were traveling and you learn a lot about, like, let's say you still like to travel and after doing something, but you didn't really like the way you do it. So you then that's exactly it. You just learn. So you can change it up for the next time you go somewhere or change up your routine when you are back home based on something you might've experienced on a journey. And so kind of in the same vein of what we're talking about, one of the things that, just gets me all fired up is the fact that I feel like a lot of the travel industry is based on this idea of the exotic and you're going to go and you're going to see these beautiful things that you're going to put up on the gram. And it's like, there's just absolutely no context like whatsoever. There's no history behind any of these things. It's just beautiful pictures after beautiful pictures, beautiful people in front of beautiful pictures, et cetera, et cetera. What are your, absolutely. (laughs) So yeah, I may have already touched on it a bit, but um, I'll break it down again. Uh, The two most important words when asking about travel and exotic um, are those, travel and exotic, because each one kind of has a cornucopia of different definitions. Mm -hmm. So travel can be any movement that any person makes locally to globally, and why shouldn't globally be something locally as well? Um, This is, you know, travel is by foot, plane, train, automobile, et cetera. But then exotic gets a little bit more tricky to break down. Um, But yeah, I'll give it a shot. So with exotic, we think of exotic as off the beaten path, palm trees on the yellow and white sandy beach, turquoise waters, misty snow-capped mountains, large loud skyscrapers, spicy food. Um, But exotic is much more than that. Uh, exotic literally means by definition of foreign origin or character so exotic could be a new yorker going to the jersey shore literally <laughs> could be that or vice versa let's um, not talk about the jersey shore oh yeah we won't it was well, just I know, let's not talk about it i mean i'm from north jersey it's like exotic for me so yeah well exactly that's the whole point is uh, it's it's foreign to what you are accustomed to. So it is exotic. So, um, you know, cultural norms, especially in the United States, have made the word exotic to seem uh, that going to Tahiti and French Polynesia is more foreign than going to Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, When in fact, they are both equally exotic and anybody from any of those places coming to the United States would find our country exotic as well. Uh, It all depends on what we ourselves view. And I encourage everybody to find out what they feel um, is exotic to them and what they feel foreign means to them about it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I feel like I think like is that it's a foreign object, and as as like I said, there's nothing wrong with being like you said on the beach with the palm trees, but yeah. I feel like a part like. I guess and it gets me all fired up. Like people will be like, "Oh, I've been to Jamaica, right?" But it's like, oh yeah, 
but you're on Dallas. like a compound like you know i mean unless you really were in like other parts of the country and you know experienced that for, for better or for worse or however you mm-hmm. feel about it but you know you know what i mean so it's interesting when when what and then i think of like actually actually it's been exactly three years not to cut into your our, our story but I, I was in Martinique. Uh-huh. I was in Martinique three years ago, and what was nice was you got to experience like the whole country. You know what I mean? It's first of all, it's not a big country, but you, you know, of course, we got to go on the beach and we went sailing, we went snorkeling, and we, you know, we ate like all this amazing food and we went hiking and you know went to the pool and did you know all yada yada yada. Yeah. But, you had a wonderful you know what I mean? We also went to like slave memorials, you know, to honor, yeah. you know, because there was like, for example, there's like an area where there was like a shipwreck because um, slavery had been abolished, but people were still like, you know, smuggling them in. And they mm-hmm. had like buried the smugglers, but they they like left the other bodies of the of the enslaved at sea. And they, somebody wow. had put this memorial together and it's really poignant, just really beautiful. Um, and they have like all these types of like memorials like around the country that like very simple, but like very, it, like it t- like it hits you. Um, there's like a, we went yeah, to like yeah. a reenact, like they say reenactment, not like in like a bad way, but like they did like a re- like, a you know, like a slave village and they, but like there was like stuff about how these people lived and like, you know, you got to experience it. It was built by obviously a descendant of, enslaved people so it was you you right. got you got everything i feel like in one in that trip like i felt like i like i learned something and also and also to people that really don't speak english so most people do speak french or uh, french. Like Creole. so yeah so you had a cultural and historical experience as well yeah. as a relaxing one right yeah definitely and i was like i can't it was, the weather was great and it was like i said there were some challenges too i mean it wasn't perfect but it was one of those trips where because they're really those compounds don't really exist there i mean there's hotels of course and there's some better hotels than other hotels but there's really no it's it's not like built into this this you know travel agency system where you you go to the compound and you don't stay on the compound and you eat all this food and the only interactions you have with people that live there are ones who work there so and I say work their work on the compound. So it's right. So in that case, it makes you really remember when you went to the kind of heritage site that you did. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, we interacted with locals in um like I said, mo- mostly positive. I mean we had some interesting experiences, but most of them were, were, were positive. And we, you know, we definitely, you know, it, it was definitely it, I got a lot more out of it than I would say maybe something going to something where you're on a, a compound i'm just using this as an example and you know i'm not, not bashing anybody who's gone on any of these other types of trips um but i didn't really want to touch on that and i wanted your opinion and i didn't mean to interject on my my little story but that was oh no i love it um <laughs> it, it's any little thing like that and obviously you learned a lot from it and it's yeah. something you still remember and think about because it was that impactful mm-hmm. so it's good and I you know that's what you want from somewhere you like the last thing you want is a negative experience and or and I, I yeah I know you mean by negative, negative experience but you don't want to have come back from traveling and just hate life you want to there's ups and downs when you're traveling but you want to really take advantage of what you can um I know some of these questions, I feel like you who touched on a lot of them. Um, and, <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, how do you thought, what are your thoughts on like politics and how that impacts travel? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, in case you didn't know, but we've had enough educational experiences <laughs> together, even in the one semester that I was with you at the new school. I uh, sure I'm sure that you know that I'm a fairly open-minded person when it comes to politics. Uh, also, given that we both attended a graduate school program that shows that we had or previous education to graduate school, uh, it shows that we had to pass enough tests demonstrating understanding and coherence. Mm-hmm. So I say all of this because it means that there is proof that we can know what information we are seeing means and its validity and its accuracy. 
we aren't just believing what we're told, we are questioning it and we're analyzing it. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I have found that through a lot of travel, uh, especially since 2016, how many people in the United States and abroad uh, do not understand information um, accurately uh, about politics. And I really noticed that in 2016, that was a wake up call for me literally on the day of the election and more importantly, the day after the 2016 election uh, was the interconnectedness between politics and travel. You could say that despite this knowledge level that I'm talking about, at least for us, uh, that I was still blinded as to how many people fell for the scam that Trump's first campaign brought and ultimately got him the election. It was literally the morning after, merely five hours after midnight that I started to see how many people had supported him. Um, and I've really processed it then. Uh, since then, that number has grown. And but also resistance to the movement, to that movement, uh, more importantly, has grown as well. But the Trumpist movement is louder and more vocalized simply because of that one win. Um, it's a movement that's based on populism and nationalism, uh, disinformation and scapegoating. And uh, which, you know, these are all forces behind Hitler and Mussolini as well, topics that we learned about at school. And this is where, when I began to answer the question, uh, connecting like mm -hmm. our educational backgrounds, for example, we get the theory behind it, the theoretical process into that Hitler Mussolini conversion mentality that others may not see. Um, so through travel, I was able to discover how many people uh, really aren't educated in these kinds of behaviors like we would be um, and being able to correlate political behavior to individual people. Uh, we have television entertainment screens on the airplane uh, and I have literally seen in one row someone watching CNN or MSNBC and then a row up behind or in front someone watching Fox News and they're covering the same topic. All these stations, they'll cover the same topic but the approach and the language used is completely different. Uh, so this dynamic is something that is dangerous for our society and the real builder of division um, I see while I travel around the country. Uh, we speak and we repeat the information we're fed if we do not know how to rationalize and analyze it. Um, and politicians know that. Um, traveling internationally, you generally see a more informed crowd of people. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you share the same political views as they do. It just means or allows for a little bit of assurance that critical thinking skills are there when it comes to those topics. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what we were saying before about fear, and that's yeah. that's 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 a platform that is I don't want to say easy to push, but I feel like it's it you can get in people's heads when you make them really scared. So you can make them. You really, really can. And, and, and go ahead. <laughs> oh no, no, um, you go, you go. Continue. No, no, no. I mean, even like I, I, I think about, um, and I have not, I have not been to this country, but um, I think about um, China, like, like just the backlash that you know when you keep saying China virus, it reminds you that the virus, or they're telling you the virus came from this country, and it, it again, it doesn't represent the country itself i mean and i'm not like i said i've not been there i've not been to china but it still like so so i can't speak on like actually going there but i just feel like that is is like the uh, one example of like putting fear into people like well that place must be filled with viruses absolutely filled with wet markets and, and i'm not saying those don't exist but i'm just saying like that's that's what they're perpetuating constantly in in the in the rhetoric and, and that's what's very harmful and that's why there are hate crimes and, and it's just like yeah. no it is it's that Goebbels thing of repeating things and um, it's funny you mentioned that specific uh terminology um back at the beginning of January right after New Year's so I think the vaccines were approved in what a few months ago in December anyway I was working a flight uh domestically and I had a passenger board the aircraft. Uh, we're handing out like fanny wipes right now when people get on the plane so they can kind of wipe off their seat just for peace of mind. Anyway, 
handing it to someone who boards the plane. And he says to me, oh, I don't need that. I'm as good as they get. And I was like, okay, I'm just okay. offering. And he goes, well, I've already had the vaccine and I've had the China virus. Oh, no. Oh, you're just, yeah, yeah, I know you're. And I, you had a... I, I, was, I was standing there with someone I was working with and I, you and know, I bugged out. at least I was wearing a mask because my jaw did drop, but you couldn't see it because <laughs> I'm wearing a mask. But, um, which thankfully so was he. But, uh, you know, it's that rhetoric like you were saying, it's fear-mongering. It's the Goebbels, it's creating xenophobia, which is literally fear of a foreign entity, let's say. And it worked for, I mean, as we know, it worked for at least 74 million people. And um, yeah, yeah it's, it's really sad how strong fear is in political rhetoric. And you do see people's behavior affected by it when I'm traveling. Yeah, I, I do see people's behavior has changed, like I said, since 2016 specifically. Um, and it, it's really unfortunate to see that kind of decline in human, um, human confidence. Yeah, and um, you know, like I said, it's, it's, I'm curious because you know, you, you're, you're in that you know, you're in that zone every day. So you see what people are, the behaviors that people are exhibiting. And um, I was just really curious about, about that. Um, there was something else I wanted to ask you about regarding that. Oh, so speaking of that, you, you mentioned Hitler, not, not, not to, yeah. not to give him an, not to give him a spotlight, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course. no, no, but um, you know, you are you're Jewish and you are working on a project right now. Um, yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? I know it's kind of not quite with the travel, but it, you brought it up. So I oh, sure. Um, yeah, so um, just quick backstory. Yeah, I, I, I like to do different projects outside of uh, traveling and flying. And because um, I am, I do very much love to be home too. <laughs> but I'm doing a little research uh, writing for a social media startup uh called on the stay in jewish history and um it's been an uh, interesting opportunity for me to be learning more about uh, my own cultural background and history of the jewish people that i didn't really know uh before with different topics so yeah that's just one of the things that i've been doing uh this season and you know me. i feel like i feel like jewish history and again like i'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have to follow it because I don't know I know a little bit of course but I don't know everything but I I feel like you know the the Jewish people in general I mean talk about somebody who's who's global you know who's you know cosmopolitan they've been in traveling through throughout centuries you know I feel like there's a piece of, of Jewish history just probably just about everywhere I would be, if yeah it, yeah I mean I I don't really know where it wouldn't exist at this point so. You know, I feel like that is a, a global topic, and, and again, especially given like the fear that you know and, and anti-Semitism that you you thought would go away, but I guess is is still unfortunately present. In right, you would think you would think that it would. It doesn't, and it isn't. And a lot of it, um, I believe, comes from misinformation. Um, it's also interesting, and you see this today more than ever uh, when it comes to anti-Semitism is uh, politically speaking, it's from the far right. It's also from the far left. Mm -hmm. uh, it just depends on the context. But no matter which angle it's from, it's still anti-Semitism and it's still unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, it's no different than being anti-anything. Right. And there are, there are Jews in all over the world and it is a culture that uh through especially through a lot of anti-semitic means it has it is a culture and religion that is around the world because people were kicked out of their homeland originally right and like you said i mean you i wouldn't even just say just obviously it's not just this country you talk about worldwide i mean yeah. apparently i mean I say there apparently we don't it's just true i'm not going to say which countries specifically that i saw this in but um i mean there are textbooks that talk about you know like equating jewish people to like the devil and like all that i mean textbooks for children in right. school like yeah there there are there are it, it's like where what? they do shed out 
And um, it, it's just nuts. It's nuts. And this is where, and this is why I, I'm not tying it back to the travel. I mean, when you realize that like, hey, there's nothing to be fearful of. Like, I mean, if somebody's evil, so I said, this is how I say, I say evil. I use that lip, word liberally, but somebody's evil, somebody's evil. It doesn't really matter where they come from, but they're going to do something, exactly. something wrong. They're going to hurt somebody. They're going to hurt somebody. Um, yeah. But to, to stereotype and to and discriminate and to speak poorly of, of people in a general sense, that that's where I just get really, I feel like you, you just must know nothing then because you're just basing it on what you think as opposed to what you know. And what you think is just on things, like I said, you could say you know, but you don't, it's, it's just, it's horrible. You don't, you don't really ever know if you're someone different, you can engage as much as you possibly can to learn. But, you know, to say you think or you know, and it, it could still make you evil for saying something or acting on different things when it comes out. And it's not, you know, just anti-Semitism, it's everything. Everything, yeah. Um, you know, you, you see it with everything. We're seeing it today with voting rights being blocked in a lot of different states now and bills being passed in Georgia that are specifically targeting uh, minority groups, mainly black groups, but specifically that because they don't want their voices heard. The legislators that are in power don't want their voices heard again because they know that the numbers are there to change it. And, you know, it's really, it's sad to see when people want to grasp onto power so much. Yeah, and they'll use and that anywhere. And they'll use, and they'll use fear. And that's where I have an issue. And then I have, oh, and, then, and then I go and then I'm talking to you on my podcast and I'm like getting all fired up, but it's, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, what's really sad is that today you see fear being used more than actual agenda. Fear can't be the agenda. If you want to accomplish things, you know, in governance, you can't have, you can't, you can run campaigns on fear and you can scare people and it clearly works as we've seen, we've seen the numbers, it clearly does work to run on fear. But at the same time, you would hope that people would process, well, what are you trying to accomplish if you're the one in power? You know, you, fear isn't a political platform, it's mm -hmm. just to win. And mm -hmm. that should scare people itself. That should be what you should be afraid of is I don't know what they're capable of, but they're not telling me at least someone else is telling me their agenda. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. <sighs> I know it's easy for people like us to get really fired up on this thing. <laughs> um, so there's another um, interesting topic that I did want to touch on too. Um, yeah. The idea of culture shock. Have you ever experienced culture shock? Do you believe culture shock is a, a thing? Either? Yes, absolutely. Many times. Um, and reverse culture shock is also a thing. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was fortunate that I had uh, parents that wanted to save money for travel for uh, themselves and for me. Uh, growing up, you know, I wasn't really enrolled in sports or too many extracurricular projects. Uh, I did karate for a little bit, but um, all that money that could have been used on that got put towards family trips. Mm -hmm. um, we were also fortunate to have connections from around the world, specifically Europe, uh, and we were active with hosting exchange students. So I had been exposed to other cultures at a pretty early age, uh, and little things can shock you when, even you know, even in your own house, uh, about the way um, people from somewhere else are behaving when they're with you. Um, most notably, when I went on my first personal student exchange year, I was in high school. Uh, 11th grade, and I went to Argentina and experienced culture shock there. Uh, so the biggest adjustment for me to see was machismo and male superiority, superiority uh, mm -hmm. to women uh, in a home setting. So exceptions there, of course, are in the workforce and government. Um, it's basically a social thing and in the home where that kind of gender division takes place. Mm -hmm. That took a lot of adjustment for me to see and just kind of accept that that's how it is. Um, we don't really see that in the United States, uh, at least not that openly. 
Um, okay. I'm sure those kind of there are couples and <laughs> homes where somebody at home feels or exerts superior, superiority to someone else, but we don't really see it here. It's not nearly as open as it is in a lot of Latin American countries. Um, I could go on about like other culture shock examples. A big one would be tardiness, like in a lot of Caribbean countries, mm. um, arriving late and, and not just like socially, that's like the bus arrives late or the train or um, a tour guide arrives late. Um, and you, you know, you just kind of, you get used to it in that sense. Um, culture shock's mostly experienced when you live somewhere instead of just visiting. Mm -hmm. You have more time to be immersed in it and, or immersed in a place which then presents more culture shock to you. Um, and I'll use the time and punctuality uh, example again uh, when it comes to reverse culture shock is when I, so I worked in Dominican Republic for three months um, mm -hmm. and it was, you know, kind of a dream job, what I was doing. And I got used to the tardiness there. Mm -hmm. I got used to the bus driver was supposed to arrive to pick up me and the students I was chaperoning at 9am. They didn't show up till 1130. Oh, you know, it was just something like, okay, I know I have more time. And I did. I get back to the United States and it's like, you know, it's to New York and it's like, oh, my bus already left. I'm late. Now I'm the one that's late, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, you do see reverse culture shock as well. And that's really interesting because um, like you said, I don't know, if, you know, if you're just on a vacation, you wouldn't really necessarily feel it. Like I think it depends. I think it definitely de de depends. Um, but um or if you do experience it, it's for a very short time. Um, but, you know, like you said, for, for right. long, longer periods, like you just sort of either have to accept it or, you know, like you really, it's hard to rebel, especially if it's, it's involves other people and, and other people are going to act how they act. So it's kind of, as long as it's not yeah, harmful yeah. towards you, then, you know, that, that's really. Well, right. And, you know, a lot of it, it comes down to, you know, there's this thing, you know, you can't change people, but you can change your behavior around people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I do not accept superiority amongst gender roles. You know, right, that's right. something personally, I'm like, no, treat everybody equally. You know, dishes aren't meant for one person and cooking's not meant for somebody else or clean, you know, whatever. Um, but I knew that I was not going to change an entire country because I believed that it wasn't going to make me feel better that other people were appeasing me. I just kind of had to be like, okay, this is it. And I can not necessarily ignore it because it was very hard to ignore, but I can just change my behavior around the situation. And that's a good way to put that. Yeah. Um, so you're, uh, let's see. Um, do you ever experience loneliness in your job with, with your flexibility? Um, yes and no. Uh, so for me, loneliness was pretty situational. Um, I felt loneliness being by myself alone at home or in a hotel room. And I felt loneliness also in a crowd of people. Um, the ability to be comfortable leads to inclusion and feeling uncomfortable is what leads to loneliness. Um, I enjoy solitude and time to myself, and I'm quite comfortable by myself, so that does help. Um, I have a boyfriend. I have plenty of friends and supportive parents and family members, um, and, you know, there are times when I may feel lonely, and I'm comfortable enough to reach out to any of them and connect with anybody that comes to mind first. So, you know, it does happen. Uh, but I think often it roots from some kind of uncomfortable feeling. Right. And like you said, you, you've learned how to, you know, a, not necessarily adjust, but learn how to like, you know, enjoy the solitude because then there's times you're not going to be able to, whether it's working. Absolutely. Yeah. The strongest relationship we'll ever have is the one with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got to make ourselves entertaining. <laughs> first and foremost, yeah. <laughs> whatever that might mean. And, um, you know, you can't be prepared to feel lonely. It just, it, you know, it, it's a human behavior. It just happens. And, um, you know, it does. And it's how you deal with it. 
in any situation. Now, I know we talked about the project um, for On This Day in Jewish History, but you have a couple of little projects you're working on. You work on some mosaic art and you do the scuba. Yeah. So, I mean, are those a ways that, like, how do, you, how do you fit those into your life and in your, uh, <laughs> in the time yeah. you're Right. So um, both are areas of life that I'm passionate about and uh, they both free me uh, from myself and allow me to be myself. Um, I've always enjoyed art and being creative. I loved drawing and painting growing up, taking um, art classes, cooking classes. Um, but when I found the world of mosaic art, I really honed in on it. There's something that is therapeutic about cutting glass and porcelain and holding the tools and the materials uh, in your hand and then designing them any way you want. So, you know, like modern and contemporary art kind of broke the barrier of what defines beauty and art in general. Um, and for me, mosaic became my way of breaking my strive for perfection from painting um, into something that demands imperfection. Um, some of the glass cuts I make, they're not perfect and they're not the way I intended to be. But, um, you know, sure, you have some. You, you should have some internal direction of what cutting does and how to cut and know where and what tiles fit. Uh, but there's a lot of liberty in mosaic design. Um, there's endless colors and materials to work from, you know, should you choose. Um, I've played with lots of different designs and topics. I get inspired by different things and I like to test my limits uh, with how I create these pieces. I do a lot of like wall hanging pieces. Um, a recent piece I completed that you may or may not have seen um, online was my constellation design. So I wanted to explore star constellations in astronomy, and I wanted to see what that would look like in tile form. So mm -hmm. I searched for images, and I did some sketching, and then I created a nice, uh, fairly large wall-hanging mosaic of two people stargazing at a bunch of constellations. Um, and then tying into scuba, so uh, my favorite designs that I have done with mosaic involve marine and aquatic life um, mm -hmm. and scuba because it connects that world to me because it's a lot easier to go do mosaics than it is to go scuba dive, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, I first tried scuba when I was in high school, but I did not enjoy it uh, because as I found out later when I was in college, I had a deviated septum. Uh, and I needed to have that corrected. Um, it was too hard to breathe underwater, not being yeah, able to breathe and, out of one side of your nose. Yeah. Blowing out. Right. The, the yeah, you couldn't, I couldn't clear a mask. I couldn't really yeah. breathe well with the regulator. But, um, you know, then, um, then I went and I was working in Dominican Republic and I got interested in marine ecology and conservation. Uh, while I was there because it was more specific to what I was doing and I was learning about things I never really learned about with, you know, literally saving the planet. Um, and then I signed up for a scuba course. Uh, when I was there, I was like, okay, I'll just brave it. And um, being able to breathe by then made that possible. And I don't get to scuba too often, but I keep up with the diving world and follow several marine conservation groups. Uh, and their efforts to protect our planet. Uh, coral reef restoration is an example. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something that's a big deal for me. Uh, I've enjoyed researching coral reef restoration and following different nonprofits. There's one in Miami, for example, that really does a lot of work there. Um, that's probably the most domestic thing mm -hmm. that we see going on, at least for reefs in the United States. Um, it's not just vital for marine life sustainability, but for humans and ourselves as well. Uh, coral reefs are really important for that. Um, I've taken trips that are specifically designed for scuba, and um, you know, they're some of the best trips I've ever done because it's just literally wake up, sleep, eat, dive, repeat, uh, like so many t-shirts say. <laughs> Uh, you know, last year before the pandemic in uh, January 2020, I went back to Dominican Republic and I did my advanced PADI certification course. 
Um, you learn a lot of fun skills that are beyond the basics you get from the open water course. Uh, you kind of get to learn what specific types of dives interest you uh, or don't, for that matter. Uh, like I like uh, wreck diving, so I know I want to pursue more of wreck diving in the future. Um, when I'm diving, I just I feel so free. I feel like I can fly, and I feel like I've been invited by the plants and animals I see in the water into their home for a brief visit. I know it sounds it sounds so simple, but it's and it's so like sweet, but it's it's true. It's just it takes you into this other state of being, and the underwater world uh, we have on planet Earth is really an out of world experience uh, for a lot of divers and myself included. Um, I know it's a bit cliche, but we don't ever forget our first breath underwater either. Um, but we, we really don't. Um, it's because it's not just about the ability to breathe underwater the first mm -hmm. time. It's the sights and the physical ability of turning your body in an anti-gravity motion that you're doing for the first time which, you know, then you become neutrally buoyant and learning different buoyancy techniques. Um, when I dive, this, it just always mystifies me that I'm literally flying, uh, something that humans are not designed to do. And it was never in our evolutionary plan. Um, it's just underwater in the home of beautiful fish, sharks, turtles, corals, anything else that you happen to see. I've Last year, I did a dive in Seattle, and I saw a giant Pacific octopus, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> instant, it was like instant, a mix of instant shock and gratification at the same time. So, Joseph, you, you, yeah. you're, in, you're in the air. You're underwater. <laughs> so next, yeah. so next, are you, are you going to go to the space hotel? I feel like you would be like the first one going to the space hotel. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I don't know if I'll, I, I, you might have to be invited. I don't know if I'll get invited, but I'd love to be. I would love to go to outer space or space hotel. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't know who to contact about that. You got to call your boy, uh, I don't know. I don't I, your boy Elon, probably. I don't know. I mean, he's not the one running it, though. Yeah. Probably he's kind of I don't know he's an interesting person, but <laughs> um, for the next for the yeah. next episode, all about Elon. Yeah. Um. So, <laughs> so what are your what are your plans? I mean, I know you still are working, which is good. You're not unemployed, <laughs> so you're just gonna spend the rest of the year, obviously, still working. I mean, do you have any travel plans or anything else that you're working on? Um. So I'm kind of focused right now on saving up to buy a house. Um, okay. I'm trying to kind of more geared into managing my finances because I'd really like to buy a house in California, um, sometime in the next few years, but, you know, knowing that I have a travel bug and I always have, and probably will always have, um, I'll see what opportunities present themselves. Um, I've always wanted to hike Mount Kilimanjaro. And I really would like to do that before I'm 35. So I have a little under three years to complete that. Um, and, you know, I'd like to do that. So hopefully in the next few years, you'll see me doing that. Um, yeah, uh, I'd like to scuba dive more. That's something I always, I'm always looking at with travel opportunities. And now that things are beginning to open up, um, definitely it's possible. Um, but yeah, I've gotten kind of adjusted to being in my apartment uh, in Seattle and exploring parts of Seattle that I hadn't gotten to see since I moved there in 2018 because I've been home so much over the last year. And that, I'm really thankful for that. And I'll continue to see more areas of Washington State, um, hopefully soon. That's great. Well, thank you, Joseph, for coming on. I, I'm, I'm so glad we got a chance to talk and, and obviously got a chance to catch up. And, but, you know... You got to let us, you got to come back and tell us about all like your next adventures. Cause I feel like you, you have so many more coming up and you got to bring on some art next time. Yeah. Uh, first, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Um, I, I really enjoyed this. It's been like super fun to catch up and um, talk and thank you for questioning me about um, my life. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's fun to get to give a rundown about uh, my experiences because I do I really love 
uh, getting to see the world as best I can, uh, even in slow periods like now. And um, yeah, I'll try to bring some art to show and um, <laughs> different things as well. Well, if anything else, I feel like you definitely inspired some listeners to possibly go out there and start exploring the world before it's too late. So yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. If you're interested in being interviewed for making it here and there, please send an email to podcast at gmail.com. Making It Here and There is an interview series focusing on ways in which individuals are using communication across borders and across cultures to achieve understanding, learning, and overall consciousness of the world around us.